another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And the end of the world we are starting this week with is a callback to the starting of last week's show. It's all very, very complicated. But I began last week by mentioning that my longtime girlfriend and I, we want to visit friends who we care for very, very much. We love them deeply. However, they told us that we should be certain we stay somewhere with a good refund and cancellation policy because, you know... The banking system is about to fail, which means societal collapse. Now, I don't know what hotel gives you a refund if there is societal collapse or what that refund may look like, but I wasn't dismissive of their projection uh, that, sure, the banking system is doomed to fail again. But in the next five weeks, when we are scheduled to visit... That's when I realized, I wonder if they were talking about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, as well as Signature, the second and third biggest bank failures in U.S. history, and their fear that there will be a ripple effect throughout the entire U.S. banking system, which would mean throughout the global economy. Over the last 10 days, we have seen the collapse of three banks, a fourth teetering into failure before it was saved, a government and banking system scrambling to stop more bank failures with media outlets making comparisons to the Great Recession of 2008. Today, we will be joined by several time past guest Dean Baker, who is senior economist and co-director at the Center for Economic Policy and Research. Dean is on to discuss his most recent writing, including the answer to the Silicon Valley Bank bailout, Federal Reserve Banking, and SVB was Donald Trump's bailout. Over the weekend, Dean followed up those posts on SVB going under with two more, including New York Times tries for a Pulitzer Prize in irresponsible reporting on bank crises, and regulation is not a mantra. Dean co-founded CEPR with another past guest, Mark Weisbrot. Dean has been credited as one of the first economists to have identified the 2007-2008 United States housing bubble. Dean's areas of research include housing and macroeconomics, intellectual property, social security, Medicare, and European labor markets. He is the author of several books, including Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. His blog, Beat the Press, which is where you can find the writing we will be discussing today, provides commentary on economic reporting. He has worked as a consultant for the World Bank, the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress, and the OECD's Trade Union Advisory Council. Dean has been appearing on This Is Hell since way back in the 20th century. He was on most re- recently, back in August of 2022, when we spoke with him about a piece he had just posted back then. Structuring the economy to give money to the rich is inflationary. You can hear that conversation and four earlier talks with Dean uh, for free at thisishell.com when you search on his last name, Baker. You can follow Dean on Twitter at DeanBaker, then the number 13, DeanBaker13. Find all of Dean's writing, including his Beat the Press columns at CEPR.net. Thanks to Wally R., who joined us for This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, which happens every Wednesday night at the bar directly downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Wally suggested we have Dean return to the show to discuss the recent bank failure. So again, thanks for dropping by during office hours, Wally, and thanks for the suggestion. I am your bitter, blind, broke 
gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how was your weekend? It was two months of action packed into one weekend. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. You went and saw Cocaine Bear. I did. And I finally did it. And? And uh, it was a classic. It turned out to be a classic monster movie, you know? And, uh, you know, it ticked off all the boxes. Excellent cast. And it was uh, turned, unfortunately, Ray Liotta's swan song. Oh, Ray Liotta is in Cocaine Bear? Yeah, his last film. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Please tell me he's the Cocaine Bear's dealer. Uh, that yeah, would be in, uh, in a roundabout way, he actually is. No kidding. <laughs> Middleman. Did you know Ray, Ray Liotta was in the movie before you went and saw it? I forgot all about it, so I was pleasantly surprised to see him there. Anybody else you recognize in the movie? Uh, there were some cameos. Uh, Carrie Russell, for example, was in it um, uh, from the Americans, Felicity, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, but you would suggest people go see it? Oh, yeah. It's, if you're looking for Should you wait a... for cable? Should you wait for it to be at the second-run theater? <laughs> I don't know. At the, uh, at the 400, the uh, level of audience participation in a movie like that was quite phenomenal. Oh, so. that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's lots fantastic. Of, uh, lots of laughter. There's even someone who stormed out of the theater <laughs> asking us all while we were laughing at, you know, people's <laughs> gruesome deaths. So, it's a good time. I was at... Uh, I watched it though. Davis Speed Two, which is an oh man, awful movie. <laughs> yeah. And a guy walked up to the front of the audience and said, "Everybody, before it's too late, get out." That's <laughs> <laughs> like the most declarative thing I've ever heard at a movie theater. Wow. I actually went out of doors this weekend and socialized with real live human beings at a non-show related event. We actually went out for St. Patrick's Day. Granted, we only made it as far as the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now which is my neighborhood bar. But going out on a Friday night is an accomplishment, an achievement for us, as we never seem to have any time to do anything. And on Sunday, we came back for uh, the Tuk Tuk's on Devon art installation opening, with uh, which features 10 different fiberglass mock-ups of the three-wheeled motorized rickshaws that artists have painted, and they're absolutely spectacular. They go along Devon Avenue here for about five blocks, and there's 10 of them. You should come down and check them out if you're in the Westridge neighborhood. And uh, I was afraid to use the word rickshaw because I thought it was racist. But apparently it is not, and I'm very relieved. More important than any of that, Will, 20 years ago, at this very moment, the U.S. was in the midst of the initial invasion of Iraq. What do we call it? The Iraq War? What do we call uh, it? The giant Mesopotamia. <laughs> Sorry. The, <laughs> there was the first one, the Gulf War. Right, Desert Storm. But it wasn't Gulf War II, the second one, I don't think. So I looked it up. Do you have any guesses as to what this most recent invasion and occupation of Iraq is called? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean... My girlie got it right, and it was really obvious, and I didn't think of it. Is it trademarked? No, it's just, ah. it's just the Iraq it's War. It's just the Iraq War? Yeah. Okay. I'm... But also, it can be referred to as, and I've never heard this before, the Second Persian Gulf War. Hmm. I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's new to me. <laughs> it's not new to Google, but it's new to everybody else. <laughs> uh, but as we acknowledge the fateful anniversary of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, beginning a completely un uh, completely avoidable and thoroughly unnecessary war, the public was purposely lied into supporting yet another war that the U.S. lost, and a law that, uh, another war that where everybody loses, as we recognize that 20th anniversary of the beginning of the war with Iraq, what is this week's question from Hell, Will? 
What mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? <laughs> what mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer uh, during, the, or, or you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, that's right, and tweet it at us at thisishellradio, sorry. Uh, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from Hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you get your choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. There's a t-shirt, a tote bag, a trucker's cap, a winter hat, a face covering, a face mask, a coffee mug. This is held guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the this century, as well as, like I said, that freaking tote bag. I can't believe we got a tote bag. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. So this week's hangover cure is not a cure for an alcohol-induced hangover, but a hangover caused by something else but can be used to cure an alcohol-induced hangover. The India Times, Economic Times section ran an article, had bang on holy? Here are some tips for getting over your hangover. The story begins, bang is a cannabis-based food product uh, specially enjoyed during a Hindu celebration of holy. Bang is mostly used in establishments that serve bang uh, lassi and bang tandi two cannabis-infused Indian beverages. I'm very interested. Yeah, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> yes, exactly. A bang hangover, which is comparable to an alcohol-related hangover, can result in excessive bang use, or from excessive bang use. Headache, nausea, dehydration, exhaustion, dizziness, are a few of the symptoms that can occur. They then give a list of cures, including many we have mentioned uh, in the past, like take a nap, take a shower, have ginger, hydrate yourself, consume vitamin C. However, there are two that we have not offered in the past, so we're going to be combining them. Go for a walk. Getting some fresh air and going for a stroll can make you feel better and less queasy and nauseous. And consume a light meal. You can refill your energy and get rid of nausea by eating a small meal. Consuming foods high in carbs might also improve your mood. And that makes this week's hangover cure, whether the hangover was caused by bang or alcohol, have a light meal and go for a walk. Coming up on the show, we will try to figure out what the hell is going on with all these bank failures over the last couple of weeks. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Former producer Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, will be giving us a peek of the past inside the present as he provides us with the historical context from the past to have a better understanding of our present. This week's sub returns to the history of the Soviet Union covering the road into and through the Great Patriotic War, which was, well, hell. Listeners will come to understand why the Soviet Union wanted to build a strong bulwark against the West afterwards. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And that's a tagline that we've been getting a lot of play out of lately on the show. Over and over again, we keep coming across great fortunes that are built on what should be crimes or the way the laws were written should be criminal or the structure that supports them should be criminalized as it is the legalization of the rich stealing from the poor. And this time, it's all about banking. 
Today's guest returning to This Is Hell is Dean Baker, Senior Economist and Co-Director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. He is on to discuss his most recent uh, writing that you can find at his blog at CEPR.net, which is called Beat the Devil. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Dean. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to have you on the air, Dean, and always on the show. It's fantastic because I learn so much from you each and every time you come on. Today, I grabbed the New York Times off my stoop, and it says, Fed caught wind of banks' issues before collapse. It says that the Silicon Valley Bank got six citations in 2021 and a full review in 2022. Silicon Valley Bank's uh, risky practices were on the Federal Reserve's radar prior to to last year. They've been on the radar for more than a year. As you write in uh, Regulation is Not a Mantra, the Beat the Devil blog, uh, you mentioned this past Saturday's New York Times column by Ezra Klein. In that piece, Klein cites a Wall Street Journal column that claimed the Federal Reserve Board's stress tests would not have detected Silicon Valley Bank's problems because its stress tests did not consider interest rate. And you write that even without a stress test, some items should have been apparent to anyone giving the bank careful scrutiny, as would have been required before the 2018 law weakening Dodd-Frank. First and foremost, the bank had well over 90% of its liabilities in uninsured deposits. That has to be a red flag to any bank regulator. These are the deposits that are not, uh, are more likely to run in a crisis since insured deposits have no reason to flee. Also, most banks have more of their liabilities in the form of bonds or other fixed terms debt that cannot run. So was the problem not that there were no regulations, but there were regulations and they were simply not being enforced. They were even doing the test. They knew what the problems were. They just weren't doing anything about it. Yeah, I think it is the latter. So again, we're going to have to see what exactly the, the Fed was doing, why they were delaying they obviously were aware of the problems. I mean, that's it, it was interesting to see. I mean, that just came out, or at least I first heard it in that Times piece that you mentioned. So they were aware of the problems, but they didn't, it does not sound like they took any action. They could order the bank to raise more capital. They could order the rate bank to, to shed some of its deposits. Um, there are other steps they could take to, to try and deal with with it, its financial situation, but it seems they didn't do that. Again, I, I, I can't say for sure because we don't, at least I don't have a full record of their correspondence, but they they delayed taking the actions that would have prevented the, the eventual collapse of the bank. That much we could say. Do you know, do we even know if they were waiting for the bank to possibly fix the problems on their own in a case of self-regulation? Were we just simply waiting for them to fix the problem or were we just sitting back and waiting it, that as i said we're going to have to wait till more information comes out there in principle supposed to be an investigation um the fed is indicated they want to do it themselves but we really do need an independent investigation it, it is good to see at least that they were aware of the problem but again it, it's uh, disconcerting that obviously they didn't act quickly enough and why that was again we have to find out so let's go back to the beginning of this on uh, and actually it started before March 10th it actually started on March 8th but I'll get to that in a moment on March 10th 2023 Silicon Valley Bank failed after a bank run marking the second largest bank failure in US history and the largest since the 2018 or 2008 financial crisis 
That failure was that of WAMU, Washington Mutual. The third largest behind Washington Mutual and Silicon Valley was the collapse of Signature Bank, just two days after Silicon Valley failed. But the first bank to fail this month, only two days before Silicon Valley failed, was this cryptocurrency-focused Silvergate Bank, which is much smaller than either SVB or Signature was. On CNN, I saw a debate about the recent bank failures. In that debate, one side said, this is serious because Silicon Valley Bank is the 16th largest bank in the United States, while the other person was saying, it's no big deal because it's the 16th largest bank in the United States. So what do the second and third largest failures in U.S. history, and one of them being the 16th largest bank, signify about the seriousness of the situation or the potential for it to be a harbinger of things to come? Well, there are two important points that I, I think have been, been largely missed here. First off, there, there's literally no comparison between mortgages, mortgage-backed securities, more complex derivative instruments that have lo lost much or all of their value due to the fact that the underlying asset, the home that the mortgage was on, had lost in many cases, well, nationwide, the decline in house prices about 30%, in many areas is 50 and some over 70 and the areas where you had largest declines tended to be where you had the most mortgages out because that's where those were the hot markets. So if you had a mortgage on a house that lost 70% of its value, it's basically worthless because the cost of foreclosing is likely going to eat up whatever might be remaining on that mortgage. So you're going to get almost nothing and maybe nothing back from foreclosing. So that's basically a worthless mortgage. So you had banks across the country that were literally bankrupt because they had an asset that a key asset that was lost almost all its value. This case, that's not the story at all. So here, the, the problem, certainly in Silicon Valley, I, you know, I can't speak for every bank. I'm sure some really are in very big trouble. But the, the problem in Silicon Valley Bank, they bought a lot of government bonds. Those aren't worthless. But if you bought a 10-year treasury bond a couple of years ago and the interest rate was a little over 1%, and now it's 3.5% or thereabout, it's, it's down 10%, maybe 15%. I mean, we could do the calculation. That's not all their assets. So some of their assets have lost 10% of its value. That's a loss. So banks have some problems that way. There's no doubt about it. But it's nothing remotely like what we saw in 2008, 2009. So that part of the story, I think, has been very badly misrepresented. The other part is the consequence. You had all these people out there saying, oh, my God, if Silicon Valley Bank shuts down, then that's going to be this huge uh, blow to, to the tech economy. And, you know, of course, Silicon Valley is the center of the nation's tech industry that really misrepresented what was at stake. And I've just been, you know, really astounded at, at the reporting, how bad the reporting has been on this, almost as though they were trying to promote a banking crisis. When the FDIC announced that they were taking over the Silicon Valley Bank, literally in the same statement, they said that they were going to issue an advance payment the following week to all the uninsured depositors, and then they would issue a certificate for the remainder of their funds. Now, I don't know exactly what that advance of payment would be, but since the assets don't sound like they were that badly shy of what they needed to repay depositors, it might well have been 70%, could well have been more. And then they issue a certificate for the remaining amount. So let's say it was 70%, they issue a certificate for, for the remaining 30%. What do you do with the certificate? Well, you could hang on to it till they resolve the bank and figure out what portion could be paid, or you'll be able to sell it that day. There'll be investors who buy it from you. They'll buy it at a discount, um, but they'll they'll you could get you could you could sell that off and recoup much of the remaining funds. 
So what we were talking about was not that all these people had deposits at the bank that they're going to lose all their money above two hundred fifty thousand. We're talking about they they risk losing ten percent, fifteen percent, maybe it would have been less than that. It's hard to see. It could have been much more than that. So the idea that that was going to shut down the tech economy that was nonsense. It was total total nonsense. But they, they created this fear in large part because, again, I haven't seen this mentioned, certainly not in the New York Times, I read very closely, but I really haven't seen it mentioned anywhere, that the FDIC was going to almost immediately make an advance payment for the bulk of the funds that were uninsured. And, you know, again, that I think helped promote fears around banking collapses. It just amazes me that, that so much fear is being spread by the New York Times, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But you, uh, with this month's uh, bank failures, uh, 11 of the largest U.S. banks are now providing up to $30 billion to support San Francisco-based First Republic Regional Bank. So why save First Republic and why not saving Silicon Valley Bank? Do they have some similarities? Do they have differences? Why save one bank but not the other? I, I think it's simply because the, the Silicon Valley Bank came first and they if you if you sat back and I think almost anyone who follows the, the banking situation, if you just sat back and said, OK, Silicon Valley Bank got in a bad situation and they're going to go under and their depositors will lose some portion of their, you know, their their, their deposits above two hundred fifty thousand. I think the vast majority of analysts would have said, oh, well, you know, that's unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. But you saw this contagion where people were running on banks and they, obviously people don't want to lose. And again, I'm sure a lot of people pulled money out thinking they'd lose everything over the deposit, 250000 deposit limit. So the issue with, with the New Republic Bank, with any other banks that may come up, they just want to stop the contagion. So just saying, you don't have to worry, everything's okay. We're gonna we're gonna ensure that these banks don't fail. So I don't think it's so much trying to favor one bank rather than the other, although I'd never rule that out. But I think the main thing is just saying things are okay, things are normal, you don't have to worry. Well, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told the Senate Finance Committee on Thursday Thursday that the US banking system is quote unquote sound. I mean it's a pretty subjective term, but in your opinion, is the banking system sound? I think it is essentially sound. I mean, the, again, the big problem that people have identified, and again, maybe we'll find something else that I and others don't know about, but the big problem that's been identified here is that when interest rates go up, the value of government bonds, mortgages, any long-term loan falls. Now, it doesn't go to zero. It just it just falls some. So banks in principle can hedge against that. Obviously, um, the Silicon Valley Bank didn't, uh, probably the Signature Bank didn't. You could hedge for it. I mean, they have uh, put options. You you could you you could go into the secondary market and get an option to to sell your bonds at at uh, at a certain price that costs money, it reduces your profits, but it protects you against a bigger loss. So there are ways. That, I mean, there's other ways to hedge. Too. I mean, there's a thousand different ways to hedge to limit your losses, and presumably most of the banks have done that, which doesn't mean they still haven't taken somewhat of a hit. But but again, this is nothing at all like 2008, 2009, where they're literally holding on to trillions of dollars of worthless or near worthless mortgages. So why put your money in a bank that does not insure your deposits? Well, it would be for convenience, but here too. I mean, you're getting these stories. I know Roku, the um, streaming company, I guess is what you'd call them. Uh, they had apparently have 400 million in the bank. And 
you just started going, you know, that seemed kind of foolish. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't anticipate the bank's going to go under, I mean, you, you, why would you keep 400 million in, in the bank? Now, usually, for the most part, the, you, you'd think you'd keep the money in the bank to meet your payroll. And I, I don't know what Raku's payroll is, but I doubt it's 400 million a month. I mean, it's a big company, but it's not that big. So, you know, usually you would keep it to, to meet your payroll. And so you'd have basically a month's payroll or two weeks, however you do your payroll. But even there, you don't have to keep it sitting there the whole time. You could have it in, in, in another account where um, it, it is insured or it's got government bonds. And then you you uh, transfer the money just before it's needed to meet the payroll. So you'd still have some period where that money's exposed and not insured, but it wouldn't be sitting there all the time. So I don't, I don't quite understand. And, you know, it's one of these things that the, all these uh, Silicon Valley types were saying we're up in arms. Oh, the government has to bail us out. I kind of love that because I go, what do you think of uh, student loan forgiveness? Uh, these people are doing it on Twitter. So that's, I go, why we have you here begging for a government bailout? Can you tell us what you think of student loan debt forgiveness? But anyhow, um, they certainly could have taken steps themselves so that they didn't have large amounts of money exposed. Again, do you, is that necessary? Usually it's not. But the, if you're if you're running a company that's got 20, 30, 40 million in the bank, you have a financial officer who's probably pretty well paid person. Um, that's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They should they should be saying, oh, OK, we don't we shouldn't be taking this risk. I mean, one of the things the problems with Silicon Valley Bank weren't a secret. There are people writing about it. People were shorting its stock. So it wasn't a secret. So if I had a well-paid financial officer, chief financial officer, and they weren't paying attention to that and they had tens of millions exposed in Silicon Valley Bank, I'd probably fire that person really quickly because what what are they doing? So so anyhow, long and short, they could have taken steps so that they weren't as exposed. Uh, they didn't. Um, and, you know, again, they, they didn't stand to lose all their money. But, yeah, I mean, I can understand why take the risk. So what impact is there on the banking system when losses from risks taken are bailed out? How does that affect the way in which investors view the banking system and how the system works? Well, the issue here is that you have deposits above the ostensibly insured limit that are being insured. And there's two points here. One is simply that they're getting insurance they didn't pay for. So we all pay, if you have less than 250000 well, if you have over 250000 you're paying a, 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 an effective tax. Uh, I forget what they call the levy. They don't like to use the term tax. It's a tax, though, whatever you want to call it. Um, you're, you're paying a, a, a tax on that money to cover the cost of, of insuring it. Um, if you're over, if you have a million, two million, ten million, you pay the same as someone with 250000 but you're still getting the insurance. So in effect, we've given something to nothing. And again, if there's some some cost here at the end of the day, if the FDIC actually has to cough up money because they sell off the assets and there's not enough to cover all the deposits, then that's gonna that's gonna raise the cost of insurance for everyone. Now it's probably not a huge amount because let's say it ends up being a billion, two billion scheme of things. You know, I'd have to check what the numbers are, but we're talking about many trillions of dollars of deposits, so it's not going to be a big big increase if if it's any at all. But but. You, in fact, you paid people for, gave them something for nothing. The other, and, and you could debate the extent to which this happens, doesn't seem like it happened with Silicon Valley Bank, but in principle, you'd like people with lots of money to have some effect in disciplining the bank's behavior. 
So in the case where you have, let's say, Yuraku with 400 million in the bank, you look at their books, you go, oh, this bank might be in some trouble. I don't want my 400 million sitting there. So you'd like to think that the people with a lot of money would play some role in disciplining the banks so that they're not engaging in reckless behavior. Again, that doesn't seem to have been the case here. But, you know, you sort of these are in principle people with the time to do it. So as I say, if you have a company with 20 million in the bank, the chief, they have a chief financial officer who's likely a well-paid person. Uh, they should be looking just casually, at least at the bank's books. I mean, all this is public. I mean, there's obviously private information that they wouldn't have access to. But the public information, the fact that they had over 90 percent of, uh, of their liabilities were in the form of uninsured deposits. That was available to anyone who looked for for five minutes. So, if you have a chief and chief financial officer, I would think that that person could have at least occasionally taken a look at uh, Silicon Valley Bank's structure and realized, oh, that might not be a good place to have a lot of money that's not insured. So, anyhow, so that's the other issue. So, if you tell them, okay, you don't have to worry because it's all insured, well, then literally no one's going to ever do that because why? Why would you bother? You write of those demanding a bailout of their money in uninsured accounts that were lost. Quote, their incessant whining that losing 10 to 20 percent of their deposits would shut down Silicon Valley and the country's tech sector made for good laughs. However, the risk of a nationwide series of bank runs is a high price to pay to teach those people about the limits on deposit insurance. Why might teaching them a lesson for putting their money in uninsured accounts by not bailing them out or for taking their risk, why would that lead to a bank run? Would that lead to panic for those who even have money in insured accounts? Yeah, well, I was I had some exchanges on Twitter the night that it went under. I was saying, ah, it shouldn't lead to contagion. It shouldn't lead to a run. But that's it. that apparently was wrong. I mean, people across the country were pulling money out of uh, uninsured accounts and probably in many cases insured accounts because they thought, oh, my God, the money I have in the bank and a lot of cases, that's people's entire savings. It's not safe. And they they felt they had to put. I don't know what they did. Did people get it in cash and put it in? The, they might have some of them. Uh, but but in any case, it was encouraging a bank run around the country. And again, this is one, this is a case where I think the, the media reporting on this has just been incredibly irresponsible. Because again, no one, no one was going to lose a hundred percent of their deposits above 250,000. What was at risk is that they might not get all, they might not get all of it back. They might lose 10%. They could lose 15. I think that's a high number. Uh, they might have just lost 5%. I mean, one point to keep in mind on this, if I, if I had had a Silicon Valley bond, say I had a thousand dollar bond, Silicon Valley Valley Bank. I don't get a penny of that unless all the depositors are paid off. So the fact that it was still selling for 30 cents on a dollar indicated that the people who were investing in these, betting on them, in effect, they were betting that there was a very good chance the depositors would pay be paid in full. So again, they could be wrong. People, obviously, people in the market are wrong all the time. But the bet was that they would be able to pay back all their deposits in full and then still have some money left to pay pay back bondholders. So the idea that there would have been, you know, people would have been left out in the cold, they'd got nothing on their, their deposits, that was nonsense. But that was really what was promoted in the media throughout this whole period, that all these businesses weren't going to be able to meet payroll and they'd probably go under. 
and that really just wasn't a possibility. Now, of course, let's say they end up getting 90 cents on the dollar. Well, for some businesses, that might be a thing that tips them over. But that's not a prospering business. Businesses go under every day of the week. So this could have been the thing that pushed an otherwise troubled business over the edge. That happens. That's unfortunate. But that's not going to put put under an otherwise prosperous business. Uh, you write, rewrote two days after SVB failed. We know that the view of most of our policy elites, the politicians who make policy, their staff, and the people who write about it in major news outlets, is that the purpose of government is to make the rich richer. But there are alternative ways to structure the financial system for people who care about fairness and efficiency. So were banks like SVB about making the rich richer, or is the whole system about making the rich richer? It isn't just this one kind of banking or just this one bank, but the entire banking system. Is it made to make the rich richer? Well, I would certainly say that. I mean, one of the things that jumped out at me is the the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank got $9.9 million in the last year that they reported. That, that, that's a lot of money. So, um, so yeah, and you go back to 2008, 2009, the, the heads of the failed bank, I remember um, uh, Fud, uh, Fald, uh, who was head of uh, uh, Lehman Brothers, of course, which is collapse uh, led, off, led to the explosion of the financial crisis. He walked away with uh, several hundred million dollars, you know, from his work there. And uh, same thing, the the guy who had up Bear Stearns, which also went under. So, so you made some people very, very rich, and that uh, that to my mind is a real concern. I mean, I'm, I'm at least un, I, I can at least understand when someone makes a really great contribution. That great, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, you know, people like iPhones, whether they should or not, you could argue, but in any case, people like Apple's products. So you could say he made a contribution. He became very rich. Of course, these people, what was their contribution? Um, they, they brought the financial system in 2008, 2009 to its knees. The guy who ended up Silicon Valley bank brought his bank to ruin. Um, but they walk away very, very rich people. We could structure the financial system differently. And this is what I and many others have argued. I mean, one of the things that I've been saying recently, said in the past, others say it too, that we could have the Federal Reserve give us all transactions accounts. So the Federal Reserve could, every person, every company in the country, we can have an account with the Fed where our paychecks deposit every month, we pay our mortgage, our rent out of it, we pay our credit card bill, our electric bill, whatever it might be, all paid there minimal cost. We have the technology. This isn't pie in the sky stuff. We've had the technology probably 10, 15, 20 years. And that would save us tens of billions of dollars a year in bank fees. Now, it would mean you'd have much less money in banks and you'd have fewer people making 9 million and 20 million and these these exorbitant salaries. We'd still have banks, to be clear. I mean, some people might prefer to use a bank for their checking and you know get their bank, their uh, paycheck deposit there. Fine, no one's going to arrest you for that, but I suspect most people wouldn't. And you'd also have banks where you had your savings. So you want to put money in a savings account, a certificate deposit, and also banks would still be, we'd still have banks to lend money to, to businesses for mortgages. Um, so the, the, the idea that the Fed running a bank is that that would be essentially just the transactions bank. They'd hold their assets, they would hold would be government bonds. So there's no, there's no risk. So be very cheap do what we need to do. And we wouldn't have to worry that a bank was going under and people weren't going to get paid. I mean, if you had your money in uh, an investment bank where you're getting uh, interest on a savings account or whatever it might be, 
it'd still be a risk. They could do something really stupid. I mean, you'd still need regulation, but it wouldn't be the story that, oh, here's a company. Now they're not going to be able to pay their workers because their bank went under. Well, their money's at the Fed. They don't have to worry. So that would be a great way to make the system more efficient, get rid of a lot of the big fortunes there. But uh, obviously, the those people don't want that. So the banks would fight like crazy to prevent anything like that from happening. But um, I always love to throw that. Well, I love it to throw it out there because I think it's really good policy. But also, you have this whole you know group of people who call themselves neoliberals. Well, they don't always like that term. But in any case, the idea is they like the market. They like efficiency. I go, this is efficient. So why don't you like it? Well, you know, they could fill in their own explanation. But I mean, one obvious point is if we went that route, a lot of rich people would have to work for a living. So <laughs> we are speaking with Dean Baker, senior economist and co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. His blog, Beat the Press, which is where you can find the writing that we are discussing today, provides commentary on economic reporting. And you can find that again at CEPR.net. It's almost as if neoliberalism isn't about efficiency as much as it is about a redistribution upwards of wealth, which is weird. So you write that former Fed economist now at Dartmouth, Andy Levin, has been etching the outlines of this sort of system, digital banking system, like you were talking about, for a number of years. The idea would be to effectively separate out the banking system we use for carrying on transactions from the system we use for saving and financing investment. So why are those two kinds of banking incompatible? How, how are both improved by separating them from one another? Well, by by putting them together, having banks for for saving investments always going to be risky, almost by definition, because investments can go bad. I mean, you hope they use good judgment and they don't make bad choices on investment, but but inevitably some banks will. I mean, that's the nature of things. They want to find the whatever industry is rising and get on get in on it early. Uh, one of the banks that went under was heavily in crypto. So they apparently thought crypto, why they thought it was a good investment, I don't know, but they apparently did. So so investment's inherently going to carry risk. And that that's fine. I mean, it's fine. People take risk. Hopefully they understand it, but that that's fine. And if it, they turn out for you, you get a payback on it. Good, good. But we don't want the system of transactions to be jeopardized by banks taking risk. So again, if I if I want to take a risk and put my money in the stock market, buy put it all into crypto or whatever, whatever, I could do that. And again, hopefully I'll understand what I'm doing and not risking money that I can't afford to lose, but whatever. We can't prevent people from doing foolish things. But we don't want that to jeopardize the the ability of big companies or small companies for that matter, or Verizon to, to pay its workers next month. So let's say Verizon, I'm not doing an advertisement for Verizon, but let's for the moment say they're not doing anything stupid. And, you know, so so they're able to, they're a profitable company, they're able to pay their workers, they're able to pay their other bills, things are going fine with Verizon. So we don't want them suddenly to be in a situation where they're saying, oh my God, they have to send a letter to their workers. We, we can't pay you because the bank where we had all our money just went under because they were doing stupid things. So we want to make sure that the system of transactions is stable, could do what it needs to do, payments get made, that sort of thing. So, Dean, uh, you also point out that this is Donald Trump's bailout. The reason this is a bailout is that the government is providing a benefit the depositors did not pay for. It also is, in effect, a subsidy to other mid-sized banks since it tells their depositors that they can count on the government cov- uh, covering their deposits, even though they are not insured and the bank is not subject to the same scrutiny as the largest banks. 
what would happen if the government simply insisted that, like driving a car, owning a home or building, if you are a bank, you must be insured to operate. Why not just make every bank in, uh, insured? I mean, that would think I would think like the day after this would happen, the Biden administration would just come out and say, "Look, we cannot have uninsured banks." Yeah, I, I, I expect that we will see some change to to the deposit system where they do, in effect, say we're going to insure all accounts, uh, you know, to the full amount. And presumably that will mean that they raise the fees that you're going to pay when I'm saying raise the fees, you pay the fee on your full amount. So again, I should know exactly what the FDIC fee is. It's it's relatively small. So no one should think that they're having a huge amount taking out of their bank. I, you know, so it's some fraction of 1%. It's, it's I doubt it's even 100th, but I'd have, I really should know that. But in any case, it, it's not a big fee. But the point is, it's only provide that fees only assessed on the first 250,000 now. So if you're going to insure people who have 400 million like Raku, I think there was some venture capitalist at 4 billion. Um, so if you're going to insure that full amount, then you pay the fee on that full amount. Pretty straightforward. Um, so so I would, but just to be clear, Biden can't do that. He could propose legislation, but that's something Congress would have to do. So whether this Congress will be prepared to do that, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to see. Again, nothing's been put on the table, at least not as far as I know yet. But we'd have to see whether they take action on that. But the other part in saying that it was Donald Trump's uh, uh, bailout, they there was a law passed in 2018, Republicans controlled House and Senate. Now, there were Democrats that supported, to be clear, but it was Republican controlled House and Senate. And, and Donald Trump signed it that weakened the regulation on banks like the Silicon Valley Bank. So previously, the Federal Reserve Board was supposed to give careful scrutiny to banks that had more than 50 billion in assets. So that definitely would have included Silicon Valley Bank, would include Signature Bank. I think it would have included that New Republic Bank also that's been shaky. So they would have been subject to, to, to tighter scrutiny by the Federal Reserve Board because of their size. The bill in 2018 raised that from 250 billion from 50 billion to 250 billion. And that meant that the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank both no longer were subject to careful scrutiny. Now, can we say for sure if the Fed had done more careful scrutiny of these banks that they've caught it? Can't vouch for it, but it's a little hard to believe that if you had bank regulators looking at a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, where over 90% of their liabilities were uninsured deposits that went to raise some red flags. Also, this was a bank that had grown like crazy. It had tripled in size between, I think it was 220 and 222. I mean, kind of common sense. You're tripling in size. Sounds like you might be doing something risky. And also, it's tied to the tech sector. Tech's boom bust. That, that's not secret. I mean, we've seen it again and again and again. So it's a little hard to believe that you had regulators who weren't totally asleep at the wheel who'd be looking at it and not going, hey, this looks a little risky here. Maybe you better change your practices. Maybe you better raise some capital. Maybe you better shed some of those deposits. So we can't guarantee that the Fed would have caught it, but it's it's a little hard to believe that any regulators doing careful scrutiny as they were supposed to do under the law prior to 218 wouldn't have realized there's some serious problems with Silicon Valley Bank and I presume also Signature. You write that if regulators had subjected Silicon Valley Bank to a stress test, they would have almost surely recognized its problems. They then would have required it to raise uh, more capital and or shed deposits. But Trump pulled the regulators off the job. This is wrongly described as deregulation. It is not deregulation. If it is not deregulation, Dean, 
we've talked about this a million times before. If this is not deregulation, then what is it? It's uh, it's a subsidy to to the banks. So uh, I use the analogy. I forget whether I used it there, but it, it's like giving someone car insurance and saying they don't have to pay for it. I, I don't know how that makes sense to call it deregulation. So the whole idea here is that they're getting insured, but the quid pro quo is they get careful scrutiny so that the risk of us having to pay off that insurance is much, much less. So it's uh, this comes up in all sorts of different contexts. If you have a restaurant, you're going to have fire insurance, right? So the company that's giving you the fire insurance is going to have certain conditions. You have to fire extinguishers. You have to vary various precautions. Well, if, if they suddenly say, oh, you don't have to do that, that's not deregulation. They're just subsidizing you because suddenly you're going to have a much bigger risk of a fire and they're going to be stuck paying the bill. So so this is not deregulation. If they want deregulation, just go fine. Don't uh, don't call the FDIC if you run their problems. That That's deregulation. So deregulation is you tell your depositors, well, if things go bad here, you're, you're out. You know, it's not even 250,000. You're out. That's the way it goes. You know, see in bankruptcy court. Um, but no one wants that. No one is talking about that. So they want the insurance, but they don't want to pay for it. And we shouldn't justify that with the term deregulation. That's not what we're talking about here. Over the weekend, you posted at the Beat the Devil blog, New York Times tries for a Pulitzer Prize in irresponsible reporting on bank crises. You write that the New York Times seems to think it is a newspaper's job to promote bank panics wherever possible. It would be difficult to explain its reporting on the Silicon Valley Bank's collapse any other way. So, Dean, we had guests back in uh, October of 2021 who believed the Times was hyping fears about inflation, and they argued that hyping such fears can lead to customer expectations for inflation, normalizing price hikes by retailers. The Times has also been warning us about a pending recession for at least a year, if not two at this point. Is it fair to compare the Times reporting on bank panics to the reporting on recession and inflation panics? I mean, don't get me wrong, inflation did happen, and it's not a good thing, but the Times was raising concerns about inflation long before it happened, and inflation and recession were often deemed as an inevitable outcome of the downside of giving money to the public in the early years of COVID. So is it fair to compare the panic reporting from the Times? If so, why the panic? What's the difference in that those three stories are covered, or the way they're covered in the Times? Do you see any kind of difference or is this just a pattern of panic when it comes to New York Times reporting on the economy? Well, I'd say it's the media more generally. I'm picking on the Times because I consider them the best. I mean, they do have good reporting in a lot of ways, uh, more in-depth reporting than certainly any other news outlets. So I'm picking on them because they are the best. But yeah, I think they've hyped they hyped inflation, they hyped inf- uh, recession risk, and now they're, they're hyping the, the, the banking issue uh, with inflation. I mean, I remember they had a story with a guy saying, oh, I can't afford gas. And he had I just backed it out. I can't remember what it was now, but he they had if you if you did the arithmetic on it, they had him buying like 40 gallons of gas a week, which that's I don't know the person they interviewed. That may well be true, but that is not a typical person. So what what are you doing when you highlight someone who gets five, six, seven times as much gas as the normal person and treat that as someone, the typical person victimized by higher gas prices? Um, They haven't had the story about what's happened now that gas prices have fallen back to their pre-pandemic level, more or less. Um, Same thing with any of other products. So they've been hyping that. And in terms of the bank panic, again, this is something I keep coming back to. They 
people were going to get the bulk of their deposits paid by the FDC almost immediately. So the idea that all these businesses weren't going to be able to meet their payroll, it was literally nonsense. It was a lie. But that's that's what their reporting kept suggesting. So again, I, I don't mean to pick on just the Times, because I'm sure you'd find the same thing with the Washington Post, CNN, whoever else, NPR did the same thing. I, was, I, I caught a piece there. They were doing the same sort of thing. I, I I don't even know how could you explain this if you're a reporter for a major outlet. These are these are people they spend hours on the story. They don't just go oh look at that for ten minutes. I don't understand how you could not have noticed that the FDIC was going to make this payment almost immediately and why that isn't front and center in your story. That's just astounding. I don't understand how they could do that. You're right. It still seems likely to me that if the Fed was applying the strict scrutiny on or to Silicon Valley Bank uh, that had been required before the passage of the 2018 law weakening Dodd-Frank, it would have caught the bank's vulnerabilities and required measures to shore up its capital and or reduce its deposits. However, the stress test the Fed was using would have been utterly worthless in detecting its problems. Laws, So laws are being passed to oversee banking, and those laws are not being enforced. Meanwhile, even those unenforced laws seem to be undercut by those on the right, whether one supports them or not. Are the bank regulations we have a sham because they go unenforced? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the point on the stress test was actually interesting and news to me because I was wrong about it. I assumed the, the, the issue for me with the stress test was do they examine what happens if, if interest rates rise a lot? So the way a stress test, I won't go into great detail, but the whole purpose of a stress test is that uh, a regulator looks at the bank's books. What are your assets? What do you have in loans and mortgages? You know, what, what are your assets, government debt? What, what, what are your assets? What happens to the value of your assets if, and they go through a number of, they, they refer to them as adverse scenarios, bad things. So we, we can make a prediction what's going to happen, what we expect to happen in the economy next year, two years, three years. But what if it's really worse than that? So one of the things that I just assumed would be included was a big rise in interest rates. And apparently that was not included. And I, I looked at their stress test. I remember this back from 2009. Timothy Geithner, I'm not a big fan, but one of the good things he did was when shortly after he became Treasury Secretary, he required the banks to do very public stress tests. You're going to put your assets out on a spreadsheet. We're going to see what you have, what your vulnerabilities are. Well, when they did those stress tests, they didn't put a big rise in interest rates as one of the bad stories because it didn't seem remotely plausible. The, the, we're, we're talking 2009, the interest rates were near zero. I mean, the, the idea that you were about to see a really big rise in interest rates, that, that was like, you know, I said it was like an invasion from Mars. So you didn't have to do that. But in 2020, 2021, when the interest rate on long-term bonds was near 1%, the idea that you might see a big rise in interest rates, that should have been in their, their catalog of things to do. And for whatever reason, it wasn't. So my reason for emphasizing that is that sometimes you'll have people say, oh, we just need regulation. Well, we can't assume regulators are going to do things right. I don't think they were deliberately uh, giving a pass to banks. I think it was just laziness. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't had discussions with people there, but it, it was just incredible that they had included a big rise in interest rates in their stress test. So the idea, oh, we have a pro troubled financial system. We just need regulation. That doesn't guarantee that you fix it. So what I've always said is we want to change the incentives so we don't have to count on good regulation. So that's my big point about why we might want Federal Reserve banking 
that you've changed the the problems of regulation. You don't have to, you, you don't, you don't need a good regulator because you don't have an incentive for people to take big risks. So I think we both have to be mindful that we could have corrupt regulators, which is possible, happens. Um, but the other thing is regulators might just not do a good job. That happens too. Just two more questions for you, Dean. Uh, so how much is the economy put at risk by having a focus on making the rich richer? Does that focus on making the rich richer not only lead to inequality, but does it lead to unnecessary instability and volatility within the market? Absolutely. I mean, certainly uh, with the banking system, but uh, this came up in the pandemic too. I mean, I, I would have I mean, it seems to me the rational thing would have at the start of the pandemic would have been to pull all our technology from across the world. So thinking particularly of vaccines, that we would have made the technology that we had available with Moderna, with Pfizer, with the other uh, drug makers, we would have shared that with everyone and expect them the same. China had two vaccines that turned out to be pretty effective in spite of what our vaccine nationalist here said. They kept most of their people from dying. So uh, China did a lot of things we probably wouldn't have wanted to do in the pandemic. But the fact was their vaccines were pretty effective. So we didn't do that. Why didn't we pull all the technology? Because we didn't want to put Pfizer's profits at risk, Moderna's profits at risk, or our drug industry. We we didn't want to do that. So yes, it leads to a lot of stability, instability, a lot of unnecessary death uh, in the case of the pandemic. And it, it comes up all the time with the prescription drugs on an ongoing basis that people can't afford to get the drugs or they get the wrong drug or the companies are promoting drugs in contexts that they're not useful. So yeah, I think it's it, it both leads to inequality and a lot of instability, a lot of bad outcomes. And you should definitely check out Dean's writing on intellectual property rights, which he has been writing a lot about recently in his Beat the Devil column that you can find at CEPR.net. One last question for you, Dean. And as we do every time you're on, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your uh, response. I don't know about any of that, but I do know that you are a fantastic media critic. You do a really great job uh, critiquing, especially the New York Times and the Washington Post when it comes to stories on the economy. Do you believe legitimate media criticism is a slippery slope toward things like fake news and real accurate information being dismissed as biased and purposely fraudulent? Do you think media criticism can be a slippery slope to fake news? Because I've been told I should reel in my media criticism because people might think of me as somebody who is, you know, uh, supporting the idea of fake news. So does media criticism lead to fake news? I would say uh, there's always a risk in everything. I'd say in many ways, it's the opposite. So when you have bad reporting and you want people to accept everything that the New York Times, CNN, uh, NPR, whoever, you want them to accept everything they're saying, even when it's not accurate, I think that's that contributes to fake news. That's the story. So I think saying, hey, you got this wrong. And I try to be careful. I'm sure I use stronger words than I should at times. But I try to be careful, say, here's the story. Here's the government data. Here's what you said. So I think calling them out when they do a bad job, I think that actually goes the opposite direction. So I think, again, it's important to be careful. And uh, again, I'm sure I've used stronger words than I should at times, but I think be factual. Here's the facts. Here's what you got wrong. Here's what you should have said. 
Dean, it's always great hearing your voice. Thank you so much for being back on the show. You know I'm going to bug you in the future to be back on. Always a pleasure and enjoy your week, Dean. Thanks. You too. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Dean Baker, again, Senior Economist and Co-Director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. You can find his blog at CEPR.net. And you can follow Dean on Twitter at Dean Baker, followed by the number 13, Dean Baker 13. This is not the media. This is hell. And you can tell that this is not the media from the conversation we just had with Dean Baker, because unlike, what do you call it, profitable media, I guess is what it's called, that's funded by corporations. We are completely listener supported with 100% of our resources coming from you. We are not beholden to anyone but you. That's why we can have people like Dean Baker on our show. And because we don't have anybody who's supporting us except for you, that allows us to have conversations like the one we just had with Dean, an in-depth conversation I can guarantee you will not hear anywhere else. Find out more by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support or becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, where we offer our subscribers an additional episode of This Is, this is Hell every week. A bonus podcast every week for Patreon patrons if they just go to if you go to patreon.com slash this is hell. Recently on Patreon, well, instead of me telling you about my opening monologue, And I have a new one every week on Patreon. Uh, Rather than me telling you what I talked about, here's what Patreon patron Nick E. told me in a message immediately following our Patreon podcast. Nick E. writes, Great words about depression and happiness. I'm bipolar one. Class of 1995, which is a great line. Nick continues pointing to something I mentioned during the monologue. Uh, He writes, revealing and sharing when you are happy has to be helpful, if only because it's awkward. Oh, yes, and I think it's extremely powerful when you weave together personal experience with the various states of affairs in the wider world, like racism and climate degradation and corporatism and capitalism. When I consider the local and the global, the personal and the political, It seems things are easier to think about and talk about. Regards, Nick. Uh, Thank you very much for the kind words, Nick. But when you say revealing and sharing when you are happy has to be helpful, if only because it's awkward. It again makes me think back to Sheila Liming's book, Hanging Out, The Radical Act of Killing Time which I've been thinking about a lot lately. Sheila writes about how uh, talking to someone you have never spoken to before, someone who you have never met, but simply because you are in the same place at the same moment, you strike up a conversation with a complete stranger. That's something that we rarely do, because for whatever reason, here at the home of the brave, even speaking with another human is viewed as risky, especially with our... Second Amendment degradations. And Nick, I I think that awkwardness and that sense of risk, they go hand in hand. So I'm going to take your advice, Nick, and mash it up with Sheila's uh, advice. And from now on, I'm going to take the risk of being awkward. So thank you. Nick, I appreciate your advice. Also on Patreon, we began a new three-week series of interviews. The previous three weeks, we shared a series of interviews commemorating the one-year anniversary of the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Those interviews were from 2007 through 2014, were very prescient when it came to what eventually would happen in the war between Russia and Ukraine. 
And if we're going to commemorate the Russia-Ukraine war, as so many other media outlets did, uh, but we did it by (laughs) sharing in-depth interviews with analysts giving views you will never hear anywhere else, we figured we should also commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which was in its earliest hours at this very moment 20 years ago. Just prior to the invasion, the Bush administration and lapdogs like the UK's Tony Blair were insisting that they had the world on their side, which was just another of the lies they used in their disinformation campaign to dupe the public into supporting a completely unnecessary and completely avoidable war, which had a lot of unnecessary and avoidable death. So, we shared our March 15, 2003 interview from about 100 hours before the invasion with the Institute for Policy Studies' Sarah Anderson, who co-authored the then-just-posted article, Coalition of the Coerced. Sarah explained that while the U.S. was doing everything it could to make the war seem like it had global support, in reality, the U.S. threatened and even forced other nations to join their illegitimate cause. But you can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Our question from hell is, what mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? And checking in on the Patreon uh, responses, uh, Tom D. says, history. (laughs) A little Francis Fukuyama joke. I like that. All right. Uh, Edson C. says, world domination. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew M. says, finding a life partner, apparently. (laughs) Wow. 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 Fabio L. says, growing up. Uh, friend of the show, Jeff Dorchin. Uh, missions or emissions? <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah, let us that let, checks out. Let's let, let us pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> Peter J says weight loss, always more to go. <laughs> and Craig J says my vasectomy. Thanks a lot, Doc. <laughs> wow. Wow. I Ouch. need to learn more about that, Craig. Uh, and then Tanya S says my afternoon nap. <laughs> and that's uh, that's Patreon so far. All right, and we'll get to Facebook and Twitter later this week. And if you are a Patreon patron, again, you can continue to leave your response at the Patreon page, and we'll get back to them and share them as well. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But again, we must have your answer by the end of this week's show following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later on in the week. It's time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vopper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. It's Soviet weeks at Past Inside the Present, where I explain to you the long, fascinating history of the Soviet Union without glorifying or condemning the worker and peasant state. 
Because, well, if you have a level-headed view of things, you will understand that the Soviet Union was uh, not all that great. I mean, we are very critical of the United States here at This Is Hell, but that does not mean that we can't also be very critical of countries opposed to America without that meaning that we're hypocrites. Last week, I talked about the difficult beginnings of the Soviet Union, and today we will follow the fresh-faced Soviet Union into uh, the abject horrors of Stalinism and war. Buckle up. By the 1930s, Joseph Stalin had evolved into what most people think of when they hear his name. He was now the quintessential dictator, glorified in a cult of personality that was rivaled only by that of the fascist dictator's um, who were his contemporaries. He was deemed infallible uh, by punishment of assassination or people being sent to the camps for uh, if they publicly doubted this infallibility. And he was firmly in control of the Soviet Union that now under his rule turned into a totalitarian machine. The 1930s generally were not a great time to live in the Soviet Union. I mean, the 40s were worse, but that was not the Soviet Union's own fault. Stalin and his inner circle in the 30s were afraid of foreign invasions from Britain and Germany in the West and from Japan in the East. Internally, as the decade progressed, Stalin grew ever more paranoid and saw traitors and counter-revolutionaries at every corner. And this paranoia then culminated in what became known as the Great Terror, during which uh, the secret police of the Interior Ministry apprehended and often assassinated political dissidents and those suspected of counter-revolutionary action. The secret police and assassinations, as well as the series of massive, in part man-made famines that killed millions of people, the system of labor camps and show trials, these are all the things that most Americans associate with the Soviet Union in particular and with socialism in general. They were, however, only a relatively small part in the larger history of the Soviet Union. And they were closely tied to Stalin's leadership and the people he surrounded himself with. The labor camps, the gulags, they had been a feature of the Soviet Union since Lenin's days. However, they swelled to massive proportions under Stalin. The fact that Stalin's Soviet Union and Hitler's German Reich then entered a mutual non-aggression treaty in 1939 and that both dictatorial powers subsequently carved up Eastern Europe among themselves has served many political commenters uh, afterwards as proof that, well, either that socialism is actually Nazism or that the Nazis were actually left wing or any kind of such nonsensical notions I'm not excusing uh, this this pact with the Nazis, but um, just as I'm not excusing Stalin's overall reign of terror, but the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact named after the foreign ministers of both nations has to be understood in context. The Soviets at the time had entered into a whole slew of non-aggression treaties with many of their neighboring nations because Stalin wanted to prevent a war fought on Soviet soil under all circumstances. The Great War was still heavy on everyone's mind, and Stalin wanted to especially secure his country's western border. And because Stalin was not exactly soft-footed in his approaches to pretty much anything, establishing this security hurt a lot of people. This striving for security is a driving factor in Stalin's foreign policy all throughout his tenure as Soviet leader, basically until his death. Historians have debated long and wide about why Hitler decided to attack the Soviet Union in June of uh, 1941 then, two years after they uh, uh, entered this non-aggression treaty. Some posited, some historians posited that 
this was a preventive strike that Stalin had planned to roll up Germany all uh, at the same time and uh, as as Germany was attacking them and that it was just that Hitler called Stalin's bluff and made the first move. But this interpretation doesn't really bear out when one keeps in mind that the Soviet Union was largely caught completely off guard by the German attack and that it took Stalin's Red Army months to mount an effective defensive. The Wehrmacht, the army of Nazi Germany, penetrated deep into Soviet territory before the Soviets managed to put a stop to their assault. The German attack was broadly structured into three distinct vectors, north towards Leningrad, east towards Moscow, and south towards Kiev, and onwards throughout the Soviet breadbasket region of Ukraine and uh, the, the, the oh, what's it called, around, around the, the Don River. The Caucasus. Yeah, the Caucasus, basically. Uh, this time and place really was hell on earth. Uh, the Nazi army committed countless atrocities towards the Soviet, uh, the Soviet civil population uh, that was caught in its path. Villages were systematically depopulated. This was policy. Eastern Europe was to be cleared of inhabitants to make room for German settlement. Roving death squads followed uh, the, the the first wave of the army uh, and rounded up Jews, executing thousands and thousands of people who had survived the initial onslaught. And this too was part of the Holocaust, by the way. When the city of Leningrad refused to surrender, the Nazis put the city under the longest and bloodiest siege in modern history. It is really hard to overestimate just how absolutely staggering the cruelty of the siege of Leningrad was. After the city had been cut off from the outside world, Hitler declared to his generals that Leningrad was to be bombed into rubble, its population starved. Leningrad, the birthplace of Bolshevism, was to be wiped off the map. Surrender was not to be accepted. And the siege, which included frequent artillery barrages and aerial bombardment, lasted for 872 days, almost two and a half years. The suffering of the city's population was just beyond anything imaginable. More than 600,000 people starved. Cannibalism became a rampant problem. And only in January of 1944 was the siege lifted by a massive Soviet counteroffensive. The attack on Moscow went significantly worse for the Nazis. Winter came early in 1941, and the Soviet forces also mounted the most effective defense of the first stage of the war around the capital. This resulted in the German tank brigades getting stuck in the mud and then getting frozen in. The southern offensive went better with the Wehrmacht taking most of Ukraine. If you're familiar with Eastern European geography, uh, or no, if you're not familiar with Eastern Euro European geography, it is hard to grasp just how massive a territory it was that the Wehrmacht conquered in this brief period of time. Just take a look at any map and see how far Stalingrad uh, is, is removed from Berlin. And that, Stalingrad, is where the Southern Offensive ground to a screeching halt in the summer of 1942. Hitler wanted Stalingrad raised as it bore the name of his hated rival and also a large symbolic importance for the, so for the Soviet enemy. But Stalingrad was also an important industrial center and even more important, uh, a gateway connecting several parts of the Soviet Union. But the Red Army held the city, and so the five-month-lasting Battle of Stalingrad ensued, which effectively broke the Nazis' offensive. With the Nazis stuck or as in the case of Moscow, partially repelled, the Soviet Union scrambled to organize a counteroffensive. Factories beyond the Ural Mountains were quickly erected and begun churning out war materials. The entire country was mobilized and put under arms. 
Discipline, of course, suffered. However, Stalin's secret police was then employed to find and execute anyone who deserted. In a truly Herculean effort of manpower and in this industrial mobilization, the Soviets began to counter the Nazi troops. And in February of 1943, the Nazi Sixth Army surrendered in Stalingrad. The Red Army then began to systematically push the Germans back into, West, in, into Western Europe. At the end of the war, after Hitler had taken his own life in his bunker in Berlin, the Soviet Union had suffered about 27 million deaths from war-related causes. Large parts of the country were devastated. However, due to the massive industrial buildup during the war, the Soviet Union emerged from the horrors in a position of strength, relatively to you know most of the rest of Europe. Stalin's Red Army now occupied vast swaths of Eastern and Central Europe. And in the aftermath of this horrifying war, Stalin and his administration wanted one thing above all else, to ensure that such a thing could never happen again. In a move that the Western allies, who had been suspicious of the worker and peasant state before, viewed as a threat to the Western world at large, Stalin now began to install government fr governments friendly to the Soviet Union across Eastern Europe. The Western allies saw this as proof of Stalin's hunger for power, but this was largely a misreading of the Soviet leader's intentions. The Soviet Union wanted a buffer, a bulwark to its Western flank to ensure that future aggression from the West would not be able to repeat what the Nazis had done. The Western allies' actions in these days served the paranoid Stalin as confirmation of his fears that the West wanted the Soviet Union gone. Um, they were just not as bold about it as Hitler had been. And so new fronts to be, uh, began to appear across Europe in what British Prime Minister Winston Churchill dubbed as the Iron Curtain that has descended across Europe. Next week, tune in again, and we'll bury Stalin and look at the Soviet Union during the Cold War and look at the developments the country went through after the death of its most notorious leader. So is... I guess... Uh, go ahead. Uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that this will take longer than I initially imagined. <laughs> So uh, just real quick, um, the the siege of Leningrad. How much do you think that is part of the national identity for Russians? Is that something that has a really deep and enduring legacy within Ru Russian society and culture? I mean, the entire war has, uh, like the, the siege of Leningrad. Yes, uh, is is an has an enduring legacy, but it's it's basically it's the entire war. I mean, there's there's the reason why it's called the Great Patriotic War in in Russia, right? Um, and it's it's like one of the reasons, and I'll I'll get into this briefly next week too. Is like one of the reasons why Stalin emerges from the war as like at the peak of his power and popularity is because he he gets celebrated as the guy who managed to repel the Nazis and and sort of like put a stop to this to this insane horror. Well, that's crazy because, you know, as obviously everybody can tell, there's a lot of comparisons there for what's happening right now in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Sebastian, always great to hear your voice. How's life treating you in GR? It's 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 okay. It's okay. It's it's very snowy. It's like whenever whenever the 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 snow has melted, there is like another snowstorm, and it just like takes another week for 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 everything to melt. Then we have like two days of of everything being clear, and then there's another snowstorm. I never thought I'd say that. That's like much worse than in Chicago. Oh uh, yeah. But otherwise, Lake but otherwise effect, it's, man. it's pretty cool. Yeah, Lake, Lake effect, effect on Lake the effect. east east coast, man. That's really yep, crazy. Yep, yep. Yep. All right, man. Enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, you too. Thanks for uh, having me on again. All right. This is not the media.
This is hell. Thanks again to listener Wally R for suggesting Dean Baker as a guest while Wally and I were hanging out during This Is Hell office hours. Will, who is our next guest up here on This Is Hell? Our next guest is historian Robin D.G. Kelly, uh, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about his contribution to the Carrie Lee Merritt co-edited collection, Afterlife, a collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America. Robin's essay is titled Buried History, The Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly. Robin is the Gary B. Nash Professor of American History at UCLA. Um, Carrie Lee's co-editors to Afterlife are Raylan Burns and Uhuru Williams. Yeah, and uh, just one other thing about Robin. Uh, he has been singled out by Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida for his writing. Uh, he uh, Governor DeSantis wants Robin's writing completely erased from the human record, essentially. <laughs> so uh, we'll be talking to Robin about that as well. His essay, again, The Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly, is about uh, the death of his uh, estranged father, which is a weird kind of death to contemplate in a series about uh, COVID and the, all of the hell that we went through with that. And also, don't we have somebody booked already for next week? We do. Um, another historian, uh, Kadata Williams, author of I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Uh, Kadata researches African-Americans' experiences of racist violence at Wayne State University in Detroit, where she teaches courses on African-American history, U.S. history, and historical research methods. Also coming up later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History. We will reveal what we will be doing on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell, live at 10 a.m. every Thursday morning, Chicago time, of course. We'll also hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. We'll announce, we'll read the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and announce the winner. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell, mer- a piece of This Is Hell merch absolutely free. All you have to do to see all that stuff is by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we'll be telling you who the rest of this week's guests are, as well as our our final guest for this week is, and uh, who our guests are going to be on on next week's show. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for the past inside the present. Most of all, thank you for listening. See, we told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>